Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Hi, you're listening to Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Today from the Brainwaves team, we have Lucy and Marnie, and we're going to be having our last episode of the Transformative Storytelling series. So we've already done this spiel before, but Wellways has a long and valued history of people sharing their experience of mental health issues and disability as a way of creating community awareness and social change. Each year, Wellways hosts an annual Bruce Woodcock Memorial Lecture to discuss current mental health issues. This year's theme is sharing stories, changing lives with Uncle Jack Charles as a keynote speaker. Uncle Jack is an inspirational and passionate orator who informs and encourages people to examine aspects of their life and society and to seek opportunities for transformation and growth. This is the third and final instalment of our transformative storytelling series in the lead up to this year's annual Woodcock Lecture. Transformative storytelling is the act of listening to other individuals share their experience of mental illness who may learn how harmful social exclusion and stigma can be. They feel empathy, they might revise their own social prejudices and stigmas, and they might reflect on their own life experience of emotional and experiential ups and downs. For people who have a lived experience of mental illness or of being a supporter, family member or carer, Hearing other people's stories can be a powerful affirmation of their own experiences and can assist them in their own recovery. We would like to welcome Fiona Browning to the show, who has been a consumer, mental health representative, advocate, advisor, consultant and activist. So Fiona, welcome to the show. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role within the mental health community? Sure, and thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be part of this series. These days I consider myself a veteran in the world of um, mental health, like a footballer. I've been doing it for a long, long time and I've got the scars and the the history to show, but um, like Richmond, I'm a winner and (laughs) um, I've done my grand final. My role, dependent on the kind of opportunities that come my way. Most recently, I have been working and volunteering in an advisory capacity Um, as a consultant and that's been in the clinical sector, the community mental health sector and not-for-profit. As you mentioned in the introduction, I consider that my role has evolved over the last 20 years, starting with a patient, consumer, advocate, representative, um, consultant and advisor and activist was something that came up very, very recently and someone said, are you an activist? And I said, oh, I don't know, am I? But I actually love the thought of it. I like the thought, you know, activists take action and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about your own uh, mental health journey? Okay. I was 16 the first time I experienced mental ill health. It was a short period and 
I had some counselling, but there was no formal diagnosis and no one was involved, my family. I didn't tell anyone what had happened at that point in time. Then when I was 24, I had my second child, two kids in two years, and it was like, bang, I was hit with a train with postnatal depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. The first two years of my daughter's life were completely consumed by the illness. I barely functioned and it was just a nightmare. Sustained wellness came probably not for another four years. It was a good six years of trawling back, um, having episodes where I'd be really unwell and then I would be okay again. And yeah, so by the time I was 30, I finally had a sustained period of wellness. And like life does, um, at that point, other situations, life situations came up to kind of knock me off my feet again. Um, a marriage breakdown. A couple of years later, I had an accident which resulted in me not being able to work anymore. I used to be a nurse. So it's been a slow journey. Uh, it's a bit like a game of snakes and ladders because you climb up the ladder and like, woohoo, I'm getting across to the next number and you hit a snake and you slide back down again. So a 22-year game of snakes and ladders, which I'm glad I've, I've got to the 100 now, so yay. <laughs> but in the last five years particularly, um, I've had such a return to wellness. It's sustained and my wellness has increased, my resilience has increased and I actually say to people, I am now living a life that is meaningful to me and I feel that I actually may have got to where I was before I was first diagnosed. Yeah, that's great. Um, so would you be able to speak a little bit about how you've overcome any social barriers or rights violations during your journey and how you overcame these? Um, I've been fairly lucky for the most part. Um, I've been in both the private and public systems. When I had private health insurance, I was able to access support and services very, very quickly. The first time I experienced the public system, um, I felt my rights to receive treatment were violated. After 10 years of being unwell, a single psychiatrist decided to change my diagnosis completely. And based on that diagnosis, the way the system was at the time, you could only get a certain amount of time in the hospital based on funding according to your diagnosis. And the second thing was that you could only be an inpatient in a certain catchment. So if you lived in a certain area, you had to go to those certain hospitals. At this particular time, because of the diagnosis, the doctor said, no, you don't need inpatient treatment. I was like, yeah, I do. And they're like, no, you don't. So my GP sent me out of catchment to try and get me into another one. And they said, well, we would put you in our service, but we can't because there's a bed available in your catchment. In the end, a friend of mine um, who lived interstate invited me up to stay with her for a few days. I did end up in hospital up there. But ironically, it was a conflict of medications that had caused the, um, the episode, had nothing to do with the diagnosis. So I felt that was, you know, access to treatment based on a diagnosis was disgusting. The second thing, I guess, is in employment. Because mental health is episodic in nature and for a lot of people, I'd have periods of wellness and I'd work and that'd be great. And then I'd have periods where I couldn't work. And that gave me, I guess, an employment history that was a bit scattered. And I found that a barrier to getting back into employment, even though I'm really well now. Yeah. So um, you touched on a topic that's close to my own heart, re, you know, scattered employment yep. and job history due to illness. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask about, you know, there's a lot of difficulties with seeking treatment. Yeah. So how did you find the right supports and therapies for you? 
Initially, my guide was my GP and psychiatrist. I have been beyond blessed in that I've had the same psychiatrist for nearly 20 years and the same GP for 17. Having continuity makes a huge difference. They have guided me and as I've become more aware of my illness, um, what, what the underlying issues are, um, triggers, they have been able to then direct me to more specific treatments and, and support. So once the psychotherapy and, and ECT and all that sort of stuff was done, I started um, doing behavioural therapies. So I learnt about CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Um, I did specific trauma and childhood um, abuse therapy. And most recently I've been doing something called EMDR. I'm sorry I can't explain the acronym, I always forget it. But it's pretty fascinating and I was quite cynical, I'm a bit of a scientist at heart. and. Um, it has surprised me in that it could, was really, really effective. So GP and psychiatrists have been good directors, but I think the real people that have been able to, I suppose, direct me to um, getting the right supports and therapy have been my community, my peer community, sharing with um, other consumers feedback about different services. Um, it really is that that word of mouth that helps you find, hey, this is a really good thing to try or have you seen such and such? Um, yeah, you know, like tree mail, it's incredible. So I do say to people, talk to your fellow consumers. Your, your clinical people are fantastic. The allied health people, ask anyone and everything because everyone knows something. Yeah. Um, you've already spoken slightly about this um, and about the more positive place you are. Um, in now, but would you be able to talk a little bit about you, about how you reclaimed your identity and your personal power and your life pathway, I guess, through um, different methods? One word, words. Mm. Um, I am passionate about words and over the course of 20 years, different ways of using words have given me um, an outlet and a way to reclaim who I am. Initially, in the early years with my writing, it would be in the form of personal journals. I would find the act of being able to take the chaos and the craziness going in my head, being able to apply words to it, take the words out of my head, put them down onto paper or in a book, and then close it or fold it and push it away. The physical act seemed to help me disconnect from the distress and it gave me a little bit of mental space to take a breather. Sometimes it was simply a case of write it down, push it away because I was so overwhelmed with what was going on, that, that in itself. Then as I went along, the journals that I had written in my early years became something to reflect on. So I could look back on those, those early years and it would give me an idea of how far forward I'd come, which was um, very, very helpful. It would also sometimes, um, I'd go back to the scariness of where I had been. And a lot of the time you kind of want to, oh, I don't want to look at that, I don't want to remember that. Um, bit like having a baby. <laughs> you forget what you do when you have a baby, otherwise you wouldn't go back and do it again. Um, but, yeah, the scariness, I think sometimes you need to be able to remember it because it's part of the, the learning that, if, that you go through. 
And also reflecting back on my journals, actually at times I would find, hey, oh yeah, this is a strategy I used during that time. I'd forgotten that I learned how to do that or I'd forgotten that I could apply that. Then writing, when my children were about nine or ten, I wrote a children's book for them. It got illustrated, it was ready to be published and unfortunately that fell through. But the act of writing for them, and I wrote it from the perspective of a child, changed my perception a lot. Um, being able to put myself in someone else's shoes who wasn't experiencing mental illness. I, you know, I get what a lot of people feel, but from a child's perspective, that was beneficial both in increasing my understanding of what was going on for them, but also, I think, bonding for them, writing a story specifically for them, and then being able to sit and share that story with them. And they very proudly um, brought me to the school and I shared the story to their classes and, and read it to them. So it gave them something to be proud of. Take away, you know, my mum has a mental illness, I'm ashamed. No, my mum has a mental illness and she, you know, she pushes forward. So it was great to see my children being proud of me for a change. Then more recently, um, speaking about mental illness, as I am today, in the early years, I would speak um, for other organisations as they were emerging and sometimes it could be just a support group, sometimes it could be a forum for 300 people. And yeah, the sharing of this with others. Um, it's strange how giving your story to other people is a very vulnerable thing to do, but it's also um, very empowering. And I appreciate the people who listen to my story because it actually makes me feel better about me to be able to share that. In the last few years, in terms of how I use words, now it's about reframing, changing my words. I used to be very negative. Um, I was not a nice person to myself in the words that I used about myself. And I started to find it surprising that people were treating me differently, um, what they expected of me when they saw what I was capable of doing. And I realised, hang on, they're using positive words. They're putting out a positive message to me. Why aren't I doing that for myself? So I started taking the words that had a negative charge or um, yeah, just reframing them to put them into a positive place. And these days I've realised um, these words um, are so important. They can suppress or they can empower. And the final thing with words, and this is where um, this series and the Woodcott Lecture is exactly what we're talking about, reading other people's words and sharing other people's stories um, that is an absolute privilege to for someone to, to tell you that deep, dark stuff that's gone on. And my favourite resource is a book by Dr Seuss and it's called Oh, The Places We Will Go. It's been written for a general life experience and obviously it's a children's book. But if someone says to me, what's it like to have a mental illness? What's the mental illness journey like? And I will say, oh, read this book. And even the illustrations, watching the little creatures crawling up the hill and the dark, dark hills and then the elephants are running around happy. Um, it's just a fascinating, fascinating book. So, yep, to answer that question in a very long way is words have given me back my identity. Um, they've given me back my personal power. And now um, I use words. I blog. I've published a book since that time. So words are just reframing my whole experience. 
So on that, um, what are the most common ways that individuals can go about sharing their story and what might you say to someone who is considering this? Um, in terms of sharing story, the first thing I would say to people is to um, start by writing it for yourself. So get your notebook. Um, these days you'll see in the magazines people about um, my letter to my 16-year-old self. Um, that's a good mechanism for being able to get familiar with your story. You could be writing it for your children or um, other family members, not necessarily for them to read, but the act of putting it down to explain it to someone else. And the other thing I say to people is get comfortable with your story because you can say your story a hundred times, you can write your story a hundred times, you can speak about it a hundred times, but every now and then something will pop up and bite you on the bum and say, hey, remember me. So being able to be, take those moments of, oh, okay, I'm not comfortable with that and being able to incorporate that into your story because it will happen. The other thing I say to people is become involved with organisations that resonate with you. I um, have a friend who her, I guess, niche was postnatal depression. She started volunteering with organisations that specifically dealt with that. She ended up being part of a program with an organisation that went on to um, to help women in a, in a huge way. She's now a, a scholar and a doctor in stuff and she's devising programs for people in um, rural areas. So that's where that journey has taken her. But whether it's lately we hear, you know, the LGBTIQ area, we're really trying to get people involved in talking about their experiences because we need community. And regardless of your community, um, if you can find one, as I said, that resonates best with you, become involved with them. It could be just joining a support group that they have and sharing your story with people in a very safe place. It could be doing volunteer work, going out um, and just being at events, handing out the, the leaflets and stuff. That is you know, a really good way to get used to sharing your story. And then, of course, there's um, the more specific ways where organisations are now having people share their story and going out to schools and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, do you have any um, stories of the most positive feedback you feel you've received um, after sharing the story? Yep. In terms of feedback, um, there's probably a few things. When, when I've done an event and people come up to talk to me, um, one of the most common ones is that people say, "I'm, you know, you've given me hope. You know, I'm starting to see light at the end of the tunnel." And that was something that um, that sat well with me in in how I described it. And most recently, I can actually say to people, um, "That's great. There is light at the end of the tunnel." But guess what? you can actually finally come out of the tunnel and your journey will go on a totally new new track or new trajectory. Um, other things that people have said to me is that, thank God someone has spoken about this. For the first time, I don't feel alone. Um, mental ill health is such an isolating condition and to be in an environment that is safe and nurturing and encourages people um, to share helps break that cycle of isolation. Something that's very important, um, it's not always positive, but it, it is great feedback. I've had people say to me, you know what, you've talked about what you've experienced. How could you possibly understand what I've been through? You've never walked in my shoes. 
you've never had a psychotic episode, you don't have schizophrenia, how can you know what my um, what mine is? And that is powerful because people... Um, I, I, there's a tag that, I, that I've used in the past, which is um, there's no shame, we're all the same. And I fully believe that. But when I say that, I say that in the sense of there's no shame, we're all the same because we're all human beings. Um, but everybody's story is different and you have to respect that. And there are aspects of mental illness that I haven't got a clue about because I haven't experienced them. And, and that's the thing. It is my story and my experience and I don't want to impose that on anybody else. What has been the most powerful story that you have heard and how did that change you? Years ago when I was first diagnosed with PND, um, a mum of a friend from my teenage years um, ran into my mother at the shops and my mum had chatted about how you know, Fiona was very unwell. Six months later, I ran into this particular mum and she sat down with me and she said, look, I, I get what you're going through. Um, I had mental ill health as a youth and then um, it was really bad when I had a baby. So we chatted about what it's like to be a young mum with a mental illness and the challenges that come with that. This lady had been an inpatient um, during times when treatments were pretty brutal and she'd had some horrific experiences but that's not what's made her story powerful. The fact that, as she explained to me, was that when things were at that point where it was just so dark and she didn't possibly see a way out, she'd find something, something tiny, something small to hang on to, that little slither of hope. And as she said, if it was something that got her through the next minute, it got her through the next minute. Then it might get her through the next 10 minutes. And then she would build and build until it was like the next hour, the next day. She'd find that little slither of hope and something to hang on to. And the way she explained it to me, and I, I say this to people all the time, that the big steps we're trying to take, they're just the little steps that we're already taking. And the power in her story is the power that can come from hope, the tiniest little slither of hope. So try and find that little slither of hope. Um, as, as I now say to people, do what you've got to do to get through. It's okay if you're only getting to the next 10 minutes, you've got to the next 10 minutes, you've taken that step, you will progress, you can go further. And if you're doing it 10 minutes by 10 minutes by 10 minutes, you're still there, you're still moving forward, don't give up. So um, at that time, she had been a mental health consumer for 40 years. And now it's 60 years for her and 30 years for me. And the power of her story is in the longevity um, it's not just surviving, it's thriving. She doesn't live with a mental illness. She lives despite her mental illness. And I still run into her unexpectedly from time to time. And every time I run into her, she's like, you still taking those little steps, Fee? It's like, yes, I am. Um, as you are aware, the annual Bruce Woodcock Memorial Lecture will be held on Wednesday, the 11th of October. What are you looking forward to the most about the lecture? In terms of the lecture, um, oh, I, I don't want to say this, but I have to. Being a mental health consumer in a consumer um, space of consulting, there's so much of this world that I didn't know existed. Really out of 
30 years of, of having mental ill health, it's probably just the last two that I suddenly became aware of things like consumer academia and activism and all those sorts of things. Um, the Bruce Woodcock lecture, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know it existed and I was wrapped to get an invitation. I'm so excited about meeting more of these people, being a part of this world. Um, there's so much learning out there and when I've gone to forums and stuff recently and there are so many people in this space who are now getting out there with their stories, the sense of empowerment you feel in these rooms is incredible and as I said two years ago, I wouldn't have even thought any of this was possible for me. I, I, I didn't think I'd make 30 years of age and then I got to 40 and I was kind of like, oh... I never envisaged that I would turn 50 and I would have a path. And to see people um, presenting at these forums who have had longevity with mental ill health, uh, it's, 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 it's exciting. I feel like I'm going to the show. <laughs> it's, it's really exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, your story has been incredibly inspiring and the way that you're using your own journey to benefit others is really fantastic. Um, for everyone listening, the annual Bruce Woodcock Memorial Lecture will be held on Wednesday the 11th of October from 6pm to 8pm at the Arts Centre, um, Melbourne, in the ANZ Pavilion. The theme is Sharing Stories, Changing Lives, with Uncle Jack Charles as the keynote speaker. The event is free and open to all with registration at eventbrite.com. Yeah, so that's all we have time for on Brainwaves today. You can hear more of our episodes at the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au, our very own Brainwaves website, brainwaves.org.au, and on iTunes. Um, next week, we'll have our hour-long special show for Mental Health Week. We're going to be attending the Mental Health Foundation of Australia's Mental Health Wellbeing Walk. Um, we're going to take along some pre-record devices and talk to a few people about their experiences. So tune in next Wednesday at 5pm for a new episode of Brainwaves. Stay tuned for Renegade Economists. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.